Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back, everyone. Back to the pod, Blacklisted by God, the talk that's making demons run amok. Uh, that's Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only and greatest uh, history of the devil podcast. What are we talking about this week? Well, let me tell you. It's about early monasticism and the devil. And we're leaning pretty heavily on a book by David Brackey, who keeps cropping up a lot in our research on early Christianity and the devil. And this one's from 2006, Demons and the Making of the Monk. So we dipped into some of this material around monasticism and the devil last week when we were discussing anti-blackness in the sayings of the Desert Fathers and Origin and, and all those people. Uh, but there's plenty more going on with the way uh, monastic figures and practitioners deal with demons and devils. And one of the fun things about moving into monasticism is that we're not just talking about thinkers who are sort of holed up, disembodied uh, figures about whom we know almost nothing. We have a little bit of context for their lives in that we know something about their practices that they've recorded, right? So practical knowledge is at a premium here. And this dimension also brings with it the focus on the psychology of the participants, which is kind of fun. So that gives us a lot of data about how people actually encountered and experienced the devil and demons. So Klaus, why did monks become monks in the first place? What was the draw to this kind of crazy lifestyle? That's a, that's a great question because I think uh, the common conception of monasticism is that it's part of this sort of authoritarian pre-modern past. And that loses track of what might seem odd for us to think about, though there are still plenty of people who are engaging a monastic practice to this day, but the sort of attractions and values of the monastic lifestyle. And if we could think back to some previous episodes, martyrdom was this kind of ultimate experience of post-apostolic, apostolic, this sort of really early days in the first century of Christianity, uh, it was this chance to emulate the passion of Christ. We talked about this with perpetual infelicity. It's this chance to participate in this kind of salvific violence and this miraculous transcendence of that violence. Uh, this gets a lot rarer as we get into the fourth century uh, because this really important thing that we really haven't touched on very much to date yet, but will be always sort of something we're orbiting historically is the the so-called conversion of Constantine and the gradual process of decriminalizing, uh, if that's the right word, Christianity in the Roman Empire. And it gradually becomes the official religion, though that didn't actually happen with Constantine. So as this happens, martyrdom gets a lot rarer because we don't have these sorts of uh, 1950s technicolor spectacles of people being thrown into the into the lions and you know the amphitheaters and this sort of thing and there needs to be other like paths for this sort of martyr like glory that are not martyrdom per se and so monasticism and this really extreme asceticism this really extreme monitoring and disciplining of the self takes on 
part of that that task in Christianity uh, because uh, theologizing suffering and making meaning out of pain is it's always going to be there right in this tradition <laughs> it's just it's just the constant and so uh, this is another way of of channeling those impulses so that's one thing Klaus, I, yeah go ahead have you have you heard about the like color coding of this martyrdom situation do you know this so there's like <laughs> this is one of my favorite things <laughs> i don't know why uh so the martyrdoms of the early Christian period that you were referring to are sometimes called red martyrdom because, you know, you have to spill your blood and monastic, quote unquote, martyrdom, where you take up this radical lifestyle and you give yourself up, you take on permanent vows and you devote your life to God. Well, unfortunately, I suppose, for those seeking martyrdom, you're not going to get killed. Red martyrdom is no longer accessible, which was sad news for some people, weirdly. And uh, hard as that is to understand from our perspective. And white martyrdom is what takes over. And this is one way of sort of color coding this because there's no blood involved. And so that's why it's sometimes referred to as white martyrdom. Anyway, a little color coding to uh, color our podcast. It's like there the you liturgical colors of someone's cassock or something. I love it. That's great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Um, so, right, we have the color-coded martyrdom, uh, and we were entering the white phase. And the white phase, I think another way to think about the white phase is this, this celebrated f- phrase, the silent rebellion. So one theory for why monasticism really pops off in the fourth century is that there were a lot of hardcore Christians who were not super into the way that Christianity was becoming mainstreamed in the Roman empire. And so there's this option to create these communities that are separated from the world that are these schools of virtue and holiness where the true original intended spirit of the Christian community could be pursued with all the requisite uh, vigor and and enthusiasm. So another way to think about this also is a kind of abiding question that sort of sticks with the history of Christianity, which is this question as to whether the church is mainstream and open. Boo, hiss. (laughs) I I sound like some right-wing blogger or something. Um, So it's either that or it's aligned with these smaller communities of a spiritual elite. And so this crops up. It doesn't, this can take a kind of confessional Catholics versus Protestants or Catholics versus Anabaptists kind of thing later on. Uh, But it's something that plays out again and again. Like, is the church for the elect or is it for larger culture and society? And monasticism is a way of answering that question and saying, hell no, it's for the elite. You got to train yourself because it's being watered down. That's why we're going to the desert. That's why we're going to the desert. It's being watered yeah. down. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say that the, the answer that monasticism provides to that question changes, of course, as we move across the centuries, certainly by the middle ages, monasticism is seen as a necessary and complementary part of the church. It's kind of mainstreamed whole, itself. Like, and right? carves out this. Yeah. 
it mainstreams itself, it tames itself down and becomes the place that prays for the world, prays for those who are outside its walls. And that's where you get, you know, that you, uh, private masses that are endowed, that are paid for, et cetera. Again, moving back to elitism, (laughs) right? Um, but yeah, but there's this, that it becomes part of the larger society in a different way from this early movement where you have absolutely this kind of radical movement into the desert that does capture some of that early wildness that you see in in red martyrdom, so to speak. So let's let's take a moment to talk about terms, Klaus, unless you ha- you had something else. It's like I, I just have a I just have like a really basic question first before we get too far. What does this name monk even mean, Travis? Yeah, that is a very important question. Not least because I always mess this up and I call mendicants monks when I don't mean to and I call mendicants nuns uh, when they are not but anyway uh, monks come from a Greek word which just means the single one and this is because the roots of monasticism are about not about uh, being unmarried or unattached single and ready to mingle I'm a monk (laughs) Um, but about this retreat into the desert this idea of being alone going into the desert being alone to battle it out with with your demons and with the demons, so to speak. And if you'll recall, we've talked a little bit in previous episodes about origin, right? And origin has this system where there's there are all these sort of disembodied minds that are supposed to be contemplating God. And that is their job. And origin theorizes a primordial fall from absolute unity with God into diversity and into embodiment and into, you know, you've got your humans and demons and your angels and different, you know, depending on how far you fall down. So humans have the potential in origin system to reunite with God. That is really the goal. That's what salvation looks like for him, if you'll recall. The demons, you know, they fell further than the humans did. They're attempting to prevent that reconciliation, that reunification that humans are attempting to, well, (laughs) that some humans are attempting to bring about, right? Um, And this plays into the name of the category of monk or single one. For David Brackey, the point is that the monk is striving to resume a form of authentic totality as a human being, uh, going back to that time before when humans were intellectual essences, you know, contemplating God. And in the world of diversity into which humans fell, this is, of course, very difficult and requires a return to that contemplation, which is afforded by retreating into the desert, being alone in the desert. And there's something kind of interesting about that too, because the desert isn't a place free from distraction in the sense that it is, of course, also the home of demons. That's where Jesus goes to confront the demons, to be tempted by demons. Everybody knows the demons live in the desert. So on the one hand, if you're trying to contemplate God, it seems counterintuitive to go into the desert. But I think the idea here is you can't get back to God without facing the forces that oppose you. And those forces live in the desert. So you have to go, according to this notion, the desert is the place to go. Being a monk, being a single one in the desert is the way to get back to God uh, in these inheritors of origins thought. That's all well and good. We now know what the word monk means, which is 
in we've already won as an episode i think that's that's totally invaluable so we're okay so thanks everyone yeah, thank you for, for listening that's great yeah. we're done yeah see you next time uh, <laughs> um <laughs> but before we go away maybe we should answer the question of what do monks do anyway what are these monks doing they're not just like hanging out like obi-wan kenobi in the desert like what what are they doing and like what does this do to put them in contact with the devil or demons travis yeah. So monks are, you can think of them as doing an activity that is the most sort of offensive to the demons that draws demons to them. It's like, do you know this phrase having sweet blood, being sweet blooded, Klaus? This is a very oh. like Texas thing, I think. Lay, uh, lay that, that Texas barbecue sauce of the sweet blood on me. All right. All right, here, here you go. Red martyrdom. We got the sweet blood. It's all about the blood today. So uh, someone who is sweet-blooded is one who the mosquitoes flock to, right? I am one. So, I am um, one of those people. So, yeah. so you are sweet-blooded. Well, you know, I'm sure all the mosquitoes and vampires would agree so that you are sweet-blooded. So monks sort of choose to become sweet-blooded to the demons by, by going into the desert, by doing these particular activities they do. So what are they doing, Klaus? They're praying. They're praying all the damn time. All the time. They have all the time. And it depends on what variety of monk you're talking about, how exactly, what exactly that looks like. But let's take the hermit. The hermit is up in usually his, sometimes her cell, and is praying without ceasing, primarily the Psalms. Going through the Psalms, maybe the entirety of the Psalter, like once a week. It depends on which which community you're talking about and how they organize the day. Um, more... Uh, this will become more and more organized as you move from these early desert hermits into, you know, let's say medieval monasticism, which is highly structured, has hours of the day. But the Psalms are the center of the prayer life. So the the monk is taking up the affective position of the Psalms, praying them as if they are taking on the role of the psalmist, if you will. And that is how they are. And often they use this metaphor of doing battle. This prayer is a kind of battle that they're waging against the demons who, you know, they they hear, oh, is that is that the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not want. Zoom. All the mosquito demons come in and try and suck on that that monastic blood. Right. That's sweet. So blood. that gives you <laughs> that sweet blood. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of what monks are up to. Um, do we want to start talking a little bit about Evagrius here? Does that sound important? Do you say Evagrius? I say Evagrius. So we'll see. But that's this is what I like about us. Yeah. One of the things I feel like this podcast is really good at is offering people an example of the different ways you can pronounce things and how great it it's is. It's so great. Yeah. Um, right. It's just that it's the world of diversity that, that origins all is. freaked out about. But here he's, it's he's a tower of it. Babel. It's a tower of Babel. <laughs> uh, um, one thing I, I, I learned in, in, a, in a class, believe it or not, you learn something in school sometimes. Um, what? The, the, the pray without ceasing um from first thessalonians 5 16 through 18 um don't worry drop that biblical reference drop that biblical reference i didn't just look that up don't worry um (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's interesting it's it's interesting just how certain verses catch in people's imaginations and i'm sure there's more to it than that Uh, but that is i believe the the main scriptural justification for praying without ceasing and like it's like an interesting question as to like what that does to a person to be praying without ceasing, to be constantly not just going through the motions, though I'm sure a lot of it is going through the motions, um, fake it till you make it sort of thing, 
Um, but yeah, like what that does to your imagination, how these words just start to seep into your soul and how you are speaking as if you were the, uh, you know, the Septuagint or the, the Vulgate just spontaneously, right? Uh, and I think that's part of the power is that it gives you uh, a way of meditating and focusing on God, but also a, a rhetoric and a vocabulary to sort of dip into like constantly. And we'll get into this, but one of the interesting things about praying without ceasing is that from the very beginning of this monastic tradition, everybody knew it was incredibly hard to pull off. And how they understood that as like a natural weakness of the body or as a demonic intervention is something that we're definitely going to track here. But this, um, it's also interesting how you said pray it, you know, this ceaseless prayer is sort of faking it till you make it. That brings up this question of like, what constitutes prayer in the sense of, is the practice of pronouncing the words sufficient? Do you need to have a certain state of mind? You know, what were the multiple concepts of, mm-hmm. of prayer during this time? It does seem though that they are very clear that whatever that concept was for individual thinkers that it was hard to pull off that much. They agree on well, that transitions really well into what a vagrius or a vagrius, if we're going to use the, the, the Travis pronunciation thought this was all for. Uh, so for a vagrius monks are trying to attain a level of being in which they're not swayed or upset by their passions. Um, apatheia, uh, along with, a kind of profound knowledge and familiarity with the divine, which uh, Evagrius, and I, and I believe also Clement or Origen, would just refer to as being a Gnostic. And it's funny how that mm-hmm. name Gnostic we associate, though we we the nerds of, of church history um, associate with <laughs> with a particular uh, di- you know offshoot. That's not even the right word, but a particular variety of Christianity. I don't know. Did you know that um, a way that right wingers, American conservatives in particular, fend off associations with fascism is to say that it's a it's a Gnostic heresy. It's a Gnostic political heresy. So this is this whole no. way of using Gnosticism to as a way of separating what's the exoteric, good red blooded conservative tradition from the uh, from the sort of like elitist heretical conspiratorial offshoots that form these like the bad right wing versus the good right wing Mm -hmm. um so yeah so yeah there's a a political a political philosopher fugelin is is the guy who who experienced who who uses gnosticism as this way to to make this distinction um so yeah there you go (laughs) um really convenient so yeah just but yeah for avagrius being a gnostic wasn't Strictly speaking, a heresy, it was part of the point. And monasticism is this place where we see a lot of things that might have been labeled heretical as sort of finding their way into the mainstream through the back door of extreme asceticism, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, though there are limits yeah. to that. Well, there are limits to that. And we'll get to that. And one of those limits is something that I'm about to speak on, which is the, the sort of goal of prayer for Evagrius was to have this totally um, non-anthropomorphic experience of God. And he uses these verse, this color, again, we're back with the colors, this color symbolism from the book of Exodus uh, of the unvarying luminosity of the the color of the sky or the color of a sapphire as a way of experiencing God. Um, And 
it's really interesting because, of course, the devil sometimes counterfeits himself as an angel of light. So you have to discern between the different light and color symbols. But this all results from eliminating the passions, eliminating the urge to produce images with your imagination, representations, eliminate this sort of the way in which your mind and the, mostly the demons are leaking these thoughts into your mind to distract you. And this actually is part of how the followers of Evagrius are persecuted after Evagrius' death um, because the, the, all this is associated with Origen's ideas. And Origen has, or Origen's legacy anyway, has this powerful enemy in the Alexandrian bishop Theophilus, who in 399 uh, basically labels all of these monks who are praying in this way heretics. And this leads to the monks being driven from uh, their main site in the, the, the Nitrian desert through a military campaign. Uh, so even the way you pray has huge stakes when it comes to church politics. So let's move now into some discussion of forms of monasticism to kind of lay the groundwork for the conversation we're going to have a bit later about one of the principal sins that they're concerned with and how that relates to demonology. So Klaus, what do we want to say here about how monks organize their lives as individuals and in communities and sort of to help uh, give background for the conversation we're about to have? Why don't you tell us, like, first of all, you know, on the spectrum, where would you place hermits? Like, what, what are, what's going on with the hermits? Is I, it what we think it is? I think that, that's a good question. I think it's not quite because I think all of these models that we'll talk about depend on like a master disciple role. And so even the people who are hermits are pairing with teachers who are showing them the ropes in the practical life. Um, but yeah, just like a very basic breakdown, because we don't need to get extremely technical uh, for the interest of this episode. But we're thinking about hermits, people who lived with a master or a disciple or by themselves, um, but still in proximity. And, and Peter Brown makes this point a lot in, in, um, in the body and what is it, the body in ancient society or something the body and society is the name of the book um peter brown yep. book and this point that the monks are never really completely cut off they're actually extensions of civilization and so there's like a deep engagement with the rhetoric of the desert but like they're still <laughs> economic beings right they still need to eat mm -hmm. um even though not eating was the goal it turns out in certain cases <laughs> uh, but yeah we're, we're just talking about hermits they're people who are quasi-hermits, semi-aromatic communities where you have um, not a lot of organized time together, though there would be some time together, um, a lot of time alone uh, in, in cells, separated, uh, but still like roughly in proximity so that you were not just totally stranded. And then I think the image of the monk that's probably most familiar to people comes in the uh, Cenobitic variety. Uh, formed by Pacomius, who's a, who's a former soldier. And so that idea of discipline and of communal uniformity and obedience is this really influential. And I think, doesn't St. Benedict say it's the easy way of being a monk? It's, it's the easy path. It's the light, yes, it's the light that's path, right? right? Um, mm -hmm. And, and this, is, this is a, yeah, like a more communally organized form of monasticism. And as you noted, like these different ways of pursuing the ascetic life matter for how the monks confront demons or are confronted by demons and the devil. Absolutely. Yeah. And just to add to that a little bit that I want us to track, to continue to track 
what it means for Christians to form communities and to be alone, the relationship between the solitary and the community and how that works. Um, are you are you in solitude or in community right now with an animal right now? <laughs> I am currently in community with an animal who is literally chasing his own tail and making lots of noise. Um, well, I think it's a good point since we're doing this as the coronavirus begins to really, uh, really right. get harsh again um, at, in the United States. So what does it mean for Christians to confront evil by themselves and that sort of heroic struggle on the one hand? And what virtues does that on the flip side, what virtues does that encourage? What does that look like? As opposed to on the other end of the spectrum, when we have communal living and how that turns, the rhetoric is not really about like egalitarianism or um, all brethren dwelling together in unity to get biblical on you. It's about obedience. Yeah. And that's sort of the, the super hierarchical model and how that virtue of obedience comes to the fore in those communities is interesting because what does that say about the devil right as you know ultimately of course a prideful figure but also one who is disobedient and i think that changes um how we view and what evil looks it gets like in, as it gets into the political the sort of political dimension of it too yeah absolutely yeah and, and again to get back to mentioning constantine and the relationship between christianity empire and obedience not just to god but in the form of you know the kings etc so So Klaus, to flesh this idea of monasticism and monasticism's encounters with the devil and the demonic out a little bit, what if we, in the next section, talk about some particular figures and what they and how they thought about evil? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, the first one we're going to work with is probably the most famous. Sometime, everyone has a pension, I think, in uh, ancient history, uh, and hagiography hey, for finding the, the 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 father of this or that, and Anthony the Great is sometimes called the father of monasticism. Uh, it's probably it certainly is much more complicated than that. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about Anthony, uh, and Anthony is Egyptian, was Egyptian. Um, he's living, operating in the mid third to the mid fourth century. He lives almost a hundred years. I guess that extremely ascetic diet and sleeping in tombs is really conducive to long health oh my god so good health. for good you. health and long life um we're actually yeah, right, going yeah. to we're actually gonna do a monastic diet um and you're gonna have to you're gonna have to patreon account like um for this uh incredible information if you two want to live to be 100 years old just like saint anthony then you know we're we've got you covered um, so and, and the winner of a raffle gets put in a tomb it, too. Yeah, so you can really hit the whole experience. It's it's not as good as red martyrdom, but you know white martyrdom with an extreme diet. It's you know it's right up there. So and that's and that's the whole thing. So like right. So this kind of gets us into one of the main sources we have about Anthony's life, which is Athanasius, who is this uh, early partisan for what would become Orthodox Christianity. Big on the Trinity, big on the uh, Arian controversy, and a whole can of worms that we don't need to get into right now. But this guy was this really impressive rhetorical and intellectual figure. He was also kind of a bastard. 
uh, he, he was like a real cutthroat politician. It seems like if you were a bishop of Alexandria, you were having like people, you were having, you were basically calling in hits. Like it's really, it's like sort of like being a mob boss. Oh um, yeah. Like so that, that's, people got beat yeah. up like for real. That is definitely, that is an accurate portrayal. You're not exaggerating here. That's what happened. No, I never, I never exaggerate Travis. Oh, sorry, I, I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe that could be implied at all. Um, anyway, uh, right, so one of the one of the sources we have is Athanasius. Just to sort of get into the legend, I think Athanasius's hagiography has it that uh, Anthony's walking through Alexandria and hears this verse from Matthew nineteen twenty one: "If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven." Yeah, the rich young man. This, it's Jesus. It's Jesus's really yeah. really hard advice for the rich young man who wants to make it to heaven, and then he hears what he and does not want to hear. Found Right, and we found the one, and this is the rich young man. This is the funny part. This is the irony of the story is that in the gospel story, the rich young man's like, F that. In Athanasius' story, it's all, this sounds great. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Where do I sign up? He becomes a disciple of another hermit uh, and eventually goes his own way into the Nitrian Desert, which is part of the great western desert, about 60 miles west of Alexandria. But yeah, he has this whole sequence of experiences and trials that are part of making him into the archetypical monk. So yeah, Travis, how does, how does Anthony get, get into it with the demons? Yeah. So it's first and foremost about feelings, Klaus. So let's talk about our, let's get into our feelings. Let's really get into our feelings here. So demons try and distract him from his ultimate goal, right? Of ceaseless prayer, eventual unification with God through distracting. Distracting. <laughs> Speaking of distracting. Thank you, Watson. Okay. Okay. Come on. Distracting feelings, especially lust, but this develops as he uh, becomes more spiritually mature into visions. Remember that black boy from the last episode, right? Who was in embodying the, that, uh, the spirit, of, the spirit of lust or whatever. Exactly, yeah. yeah. All right, thank you, Watson. And then this develops further into full-blown physical attacks, right? So from basic lust into visions of the black boy, and then finally he's like getting beaten up in his monastic cave or whatever by demons, and then finally by the devil himself and his entourage. This violence marks the devil's desperation, Right? How can I stop this guy from his spiritual advancement? And it follows an important scriptural pattern from Job. At first, God allows the devil to mess with Job's mind through grief. And then later, the devil can actually inflict damage on Job's body. Right? So we have this escalation that moves from the psychological into the physical realm. And this fits with a long-standing theme on our show. God's permission, God's acquiescence for all of this nonsense, and how to make spiritual theological sense of that. So Bracky makes an interesting comparison between the biblical archetypes of Athanasius's Antony and the Antony of the letters. Okay, so what am I talking about here? There is a series of letters that have been attributed to Antony in somewhat recent scholarship, Whereas before, we thought all we had was this 
depiction of him by Athanasius in the somewhat hagiographic text. Well, now we can sort of compare back and forth between what we think are authentic letters and from this uh, biography. So in the life, in Athanasius's life of Antony, Job perseveres. But in the letters, in real life, we think, Antony and his followers were more into Jacob, who transforms and progresses as a person, um, culminating in Jacob's wrestling with God in that Genesis account, um, or with the angel, that wrestling, that sense of overcoming over time, changing and progressing as a person. Which, which is like manifest in the name change to Israel. Then. Yes. So it's, it's, that's, that's important. Yeah, right? that transformation is marked by the name change. Exactly. So you have two models then. The perseverance of the natural Edenic self versus progression modeled by biblical archetypes of growth, if you will. If we stick with Anthony as he appears in Athanasius's narrative, uh, the demons aren't really there to tempt Anthony. Uh, although that's sort of the a stereotype, I think it was like more of a stereotype of the 19th century humorist and satirist to say like, oh, these these horny monks are being tempted in the desert. Um, there's a bit of that in the beginning, but the demons are mostly there to like really scare the bejesus out of Antony. They're there to get him to chick out. They're get, they're there to get him to chicken out. Basically, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording in the letters. Anthony is more concerned with demons as invasive thoughts, to use the parlance of our times. And we incarnate demons or even the devil by dwelling with and acting on those thoughts. Uh, what we get in Athanasius' story are these visions. We, they're, they're distracting thoughts, but there's visions. We have like animals coming out of the woodwork, uh, sometimes unclean animals from Jewish tradition, sometimes these sort of fearsome lions and tigers and bears, oh my, sort of situation, who are also the animals who killed Christian martyrs in the arena. So this one of the things that Athanasius' narrative does is link Antony to martyrdom. And so he's sort of being martyred and martyred and martyred and martyred, but he doesn't die. <laughs> and he's also being martyred by these animals in the desert. And these were the environments and the animals that represented pre-Christian gods in Egypt. And so it's this confrontation, not only with his tortured psychology, in fact, it's not about that at all, really, but it's mostly this confrontation with the sources of pagan religion. So as Anthony progresses and, you know, he, he, he throws, he's throwing demons down, it gets very physical. So basically as Anthony progresses in his spiritual life and gets more and more in, like the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the of monastic life, um, Athanasius really does emphasize his sort of physicality as a key ingredient to this. And it sort of connects to Athanasius's interest if you ever read uh, On the Incarnation, another treatise where he's like sort of really obsesses about how Jesus's body doesn't putrefy <laughs> when it's in the tomb uh he really like is hones in on like Ath athanasius he doesn't look bad after you know being kicked around the desert he looks great he's never looked better he's he's like the spitting image of adam from the garden of eden um this really an this sort of anthony, anthony not athanasius yeah, yeah. Athanasius, not Athanasius, no not at all he's like a mob boss anthony is like an action hero but in one climatic moment Antony lowers himself into the tombs. And so he's like invading the space of the devil. And these demons, they just, 
they really they kick the crap out of him. He suffers blows. He's being tortured. He can't speak because of the pain. Anthony is going through this constant perpetual martyrdom, and yet at the end, it's the divine light that sends the demons packing, and yet he feels all the stronger for it. And so he's going through this spiritual and physical combat as a kind of training. Um, but he's always his strongest when he's his most vulnerable. I guess this is sort of a, a, a kind of a typical Christian theme. I don't know. Um, and it's kind of complex because it's as if Anthony's getting credit for overcoming all of these feats uh, and for not chickening out. And yet God gets the ultimate credit. We have this sort of, I guess in some ways, familiar double uh, attribution of virtue. But the point is, is that, and I, as we mentioned before, for Athanasius, Jesus makes the fear of death obsolete. So, so, so Anthony can be in this tomb, in a literal tomb, approach death and still hold firm. And this is the miracle of the incarnation at work. Yeah, exactly. It's people like Anthony who are, in a sense, finishing up the victory over the devil in this, in this early Christian period where we're after the incarnation. Jesus has done what needs to be done and we're in this sort of funny time where christians are trying to make theological sense of well how how does evil still exist well we have these heroes who are kind of continuing the work if you will of the incarnation and that victory over the devil so here it might be helpful to do a little comparison to another monastic mastermind chanute and i'm waiting for a klaus's pronunciation like what what have you been no, saying that's in your head? that's that's, that's what I've been saying, Chanute. All right, so, yeah. all the cool kids say Chanute. So, Chanute, who describes the devil as an enemy soldier, again, continuing that sort of military or pugilistic uh, rhetoric that we've we've heard already, the devil as, is this enemy soldier who has been dismembered by Christ and needs finishing off. Okay, and here I do think we need a little bit of a quotation. He destroyed the devil like a tyrant whose legs were cut off up to his thighs and his arms up to his shoulders. And as for the other members of his body, his heart and his spine, Christ struck them all. The devil is unable to move any of his members so as to get up or pursue a person except for his breath alone, which comes and goes. That is, his thoughts, which Christ left in him because Christ wants his children, his soldiers, his servants, and all who are on his side to lay their hands upon him, that is the devil, uh, which means to fight against his godless thoughts so that they might be glorified with him and reign with him. So to summarize here, this incapacitated devil is left to have his breath. And that is a kind of pedagogical move on the part of Christ so that his servants have this, you know, battle to continue. He's, he's leaving it for them to sort of finish off the work that needs to be done. And that is an example of how Chanute, this other monastic um, writer, is describing to his disciples what the work of monasticism is, how it relates to demonology, to the devil, etc. That's interesting too, just to comment on this for a second. This reminds me of the Satan of Dante, the incapacitated, frozen Satan yes. who can't move. This is an interesting pattern of whether the, de the devil is ultra active and powerful or whether the devil is kind of dismembered, uh, deactivated, disabled. Um, and so we see Chanute 
using the imagery of combat to describe this this kind of zombie devil who's waiting to be finished off, but the only thing he can do is sort of admit this putrid putrid stench of evil thoughts. Um, and as we'll see later, this it's really interesting for Chanute to hone in on the model of the demons and the devils as primarily associated with bad thoughts. Um, there's another example of the demonic that we'll look at later that is more like the sort of heroic Antony, uh, Antony action hero mode. But yeah, so let's, let's go to another, a person who we have a lot more of what we think are his authentic writings, um, and was like hugely influential on monastic thought in the West via John Cashin. This is Evagrius Ponticus. And so Travis, would you just like sort of get us into his a quick overview of his biography and so we can get into uh, some of the ideas about his demonology. Yeah, definitely. So this, this is another figure we've already discussed. Actually, did we, did we already talk about someone in Nitria? Did I make that up? In, yeah. In Anthony's, in, Anthony's, in, Anthony's in Nitria. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So same region of the desert in Egypt, the Nitrian desert in the fourth century, we've got this figure Evagrius who had been, a kind of Christian intellectual, a preacher, etc., in Constantinople, but who had this, you know, spiritual crisis moment, this conversion, if you will. This is common in the biographical information we get on early Christian near figures. love affair. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so this. Oh, right. The, he he fell in love with this woman, and she was married, and this was very bad, and he was not supposed to, you know, do the horizontal mambo with her. And so he freaks out, <laughs> and he's like, you know what? The solution. And someone told him to go become a monk. I forgot. He like consulted right. someone, and they was they were like, go get thee to a monastery, basically. And he was like, thanks. Um, and he did. So he left initially for Jerusalem, but ends up in the Egyptian desert, the famous, you know, birthplace of Christian monasticism, a place to go battle your demons. And that's where he spends the rest of his life dedicated to um, both the practice of monasticism and also the teachings that he leaves behind that we actually have access to, which is pretty cool. So he is interested in demons, definitely in the plural. And it gets pretty psychological. He talks about thoughts or logismoi, which are associated with the demonic. Okay. So demons are also broken up into eight primary, what he calls thoughts here, or vices. We might call them vices. And lots of scholars have tried to figure out, oh, where did he come up with this list? And they have these theories. But basically, we think he this particular collection of eight was original to Evagrius and it was incredibly influential on future forms of, you know, lists of seven deadly sins, for example, which will uh, come about a bit later. This is an influential list of um, bad thoughts and a really interesting way, I think, to approach what is demonology? What are the demons? How does it relate to our psyche and our, you know, evil thoughts? Um, this is very practical for him because this is what he is and the other monks are battling in this Egyptian desert. Now, when I say that this is, um, I want to make an important qualification here. I am not saying, and Evagoras was definitely not saying, that the demons are passions. 
it's not quite right. He called them proto-passions and described them as kind of those involuntary movements within a person, those initial kind of tuggings towards sin, if you will. The example that he uses is being angry, right? You get angry as the starting place, but then choosing to pursue vengeance is giving in to that proto-passion. So you have that first movement of anger, but then you consent to it, basically. You offer up your, you make a decision with your will, and that's the point where you've really entered the bad territory for him. So where is this coming from? You know, lots of different theories through Origen and others. We think that he gets some of these ideas from the Stoics, uh, the Greek philosophers, and then uses that to explain how the demons use their thoughts to influence the human soul towards sin, to kind of tempt us along the evil path. So what are these wonderful, uh, awesome proto-passions, Klaus? Do you want to run through the list for us real quick? Sure. Um, yeah, so the eight thoughts um, are first and foremost gluttony, then sexual immorality or lust, and then love of money, which I think is a great one to, to include here, then sadness, then anger, then this one that we'll focus on in a bit, uh, Acadia, and then vainglory for seven, and then eighth is pride. And you were talking about how practical this is, and uh, Avagrius, Avagrius, tomato, tomato. You're probably right, but I'll keep saying it the way I do <laughs> because I have to. There's no right. There's no right here. It's he, No one was, quote unquote, speaking English, so it's fine. So he gets a lot of his information from holding these, uh, I believe, on Saturday nights, uh, these late night consultations with other monks and it was almost like group therapy, the way it sounded like. And I don't mean to psychologize everything, but it, it was a sense of these people just talking through their their challenges. Um, and then he would even counsel monks one-on-one even beyond that. So he would have these really late nights of just sort of working through people's experiences. And so the book of experience, um, to borrow, to coin a phrase here, is really important for uh, the monastic life and, and the sort of ways in which one's life provides data about God and the devil. Uh, shout out to Bernard of Clairvaux, who talks about the book of experience. That's all. Just want to give him a shout out. Thanks. For sure. And so the list that we just read through, the uh, the, eight, the eight thoughts or demons, this is from a book called The Practicos. And so Evagrius really, he, he drew on this, uh, what I would call like psychological data and he created very practical books about how to deal with these demons because for Evagrius if you had knowledge about these demons you had power over them and even the ability to name them could help drive them away so he you know eventually as one progressed you would he would get into more theoretical niceties about the uh, about demonology and the ontology of spirits and, and pneumatology and all these sorts of things but in the beginning it was like oh you got to recognize what these things do to you that's the most important part and he would even have books i think the ones called like the anti rhetoricos where he would like give you scripts and scriptural passages and prayers to respond to the temptations of particular demons um, as a way of combating them. So it's about very practical knowledge for persevering and also persevering, but also growing too. to sort of think about the Job versus uh, Jacob biblical archetype for the monk's life. Well, Klaus, isn't that just good? Like, uh, 
practice for exorcism, right? Good exorcist practice for you to try and get the name of the demon out, right? Like that's that idea certainly survives much later. This idea of like knowing your enemy and finding the name, naming, and then and then through that being able to choose your remedy or choose your your method of attack. No, for sure. I think that's that that is really important. How knowledge does have this really elevated role in in all of this. I think one of the things I think that's most interesting about the list is how I said first and foremost, foremost is a bit um, of an exaggeration, which I may have been accused of earlier. (laughs) Uh, But how important gluttony is. So gluttony is like elementary in that it's presupposed for things like sexual immorality or love of money. Like we'll take the example of lust um, or sexual immorality. Evagrius assumes that if the monk is eating too much, which we would consider a normal amount, and sleeping too much, which he, you know we would consider a normal amount, well, he would consider, oh, you're not like staying up half the night singing psalms you know, uh, during the canonical hours. I don't really actually know if the canonical hours and the breakdown work the same way. In any case, he wanted you up a lot of the night praying and singing psalms. You would have too much energy, and that energy would, would be a precondition for having sexual desire basically well um you know, so i think gluttony, it's gluttony yeah Go i ahead. think it's really telling the way you said a normal amount and then i think it's pretty clear that there's nothing normal about what he wants to have happen he's trying to transcend like the project is to transcend his own flesh in a sense to those to battle proto passions which are pretty i mean he would categorize them not as natural he would call them because they are from a demonic source so it would technically not be natural but i would say normal right he would say that they are probably normal without being natural and so to exactly you have to go to extremes you're out in the desert you're starving yourself so that's all right right and interesting thing about lust and all this the example i just gave lust is requires gluttony as a, as a building block lust kind of comes off as like a lower level mini boss you're not not bowser and super mario brothers but a giant turtle or something or giant mushroom it's a de- <laughs> it's a demon who messes with the body and maybe a little bit less with the spirit although that gets a little bit complicated but it's in any case it's lower on the hierarchy it's a mini boss for god's sakes though it is clear that evagrius sees how this demon will continue to uh, afflict monks it's like not just a quick fix but it's still low on the the sort of the ranking system for uh spiritually experienced monks it's almost i don't know i, I get the feeling even though Evagrius was sort of driven into the monastic life by his lust and also his pride i guess you in vainglory uh, which we'll get to it, i get the impression that he's not super interested in it uh and maybe maybe i'm wrong about that but um that's not uniformly true though and let me will turn to Evagrius's great student who transmits a lot of his influence into the monastic thought and practice of the West, John Cashin. Um, so John Cashin has this passage that I, I'm going to share quickly from the Institutes about lust. So I knew one of the number of the brethren whom I heartily wish I had never known since afterwards he allowed himself to be saddled with the responsibilities of my order ouch, who confessed to a most admirable elder that he was attacked by a terrible sin of the flesh, 
for he was inflamed with an intolerable lust, with the unnatural desire of suffering rather than of committing a shameful act. Hmm, I wonder what he's talking about. Then the other, like a true spiritual physician, at once saw through the inward cause and origin of this evil, and sighing deeply said, Never would the Lord have suffered you to be given over to so foul a spirit unless you had blasphemed against him. And he, when this was discovered, at once fell at his feet on the ground and struck with the utmost astonishment, as if he saw the secrets of his heart laid bare by God, confessed that he had blasphemed with evil thoughts against the Son of God. Whence it is clear that one who is possessed by the spirit of pride, or has been guilty of blasphemy against God, as one who offers a wrong to him from whom the gift of purity must be looked for, is deprived of his uprightness and perfection and does not deserve the sanctifying grace of chastity. Wow. It's kind of so that's tortured, isn't it? Like the way that we it's, get it's through, yeah. the way that we cycle through a set of these thoughts, or I mean, what were thoughts in Evagrius, but here, you know, are these uh, what we might call sins. Um, how he connects all of them together. But there are several things here that are super important. One is this idea of the spiritual physician as the the abbot, right? The elder in the monastery who can diagnose and treat what's going on. That's one thing that I want, I want to note here. Um, another is that lust doesn't necessarily have to be for a shameful act. Let's sex, I don't know exactly. Um, but we have this unconventional lust for um, suffering, which is interesting. Has he gone overboard here in his desire for asceticism? Perhaps. But the true physician sees through it and says, that's kind of not a thing. Or the fact that this is coming up is so weird that it points to this other sin that you must have done. You have to, this desire for what I'm interpreting as a excessive asceticism means that you've been prideful and that you have therefore blasphemed against the son of God. That's how I read this. Um, so there's this complicated relationship between pride and, um, and lust here, a very weird particular kind of lust. But this, this is what they were up to, Klaus. When you envision that scene of the late night chapter for Evagrius, I think here Cashin is pointing to a very similar situation where you have the individual spiritual path of a monk that's being presented to an elder in a, in a form of confession and a diagnosis that works us through all these complicated ways that these desert monastics saw their sins as related one to the next and how they could combat them most effectively. Right, that's what I took away, that the, the demons were never... It seems Evagrius treats them analytically one by one, but it seems like in practice they were often bound up and like mutually reinforcing or even setting screens and, and disguising, you know, almost camouflaging one for the other. Right, which is... A, it's that wiliness of these, of these demonic sins, these demonic thoughts that, that appear, they have a bit of a protean nature, and we'll certainly get into that a bit later, um, that makes that spiritual discernment, that discernment of spirits, such a difficult task, and why an elder, why someone experienced is needed, going back to the hermits, through into the Cenobites, the, you know, traditional monastics who live in communities, right? All of that all of those different varieties, there's, there has to be this passing down, this experiential knowledge of combating the demons. So at this point, 
Let's skip ahead, Klaus, to two of the really big demons here, pride versus vainglory. And let's go back to Evagrius to get at this distinction. Because I don't know about you, but when I hear these words, I think, isn't that kind of the same thing? But there's an important distinction. Yeah, Yeah, there's an important distinction for Evagrius here. So the proud person believes what the vainglorious person wanted his admirers to say about him. So basic i mean one way of thinking of that is the vainglorious person doesn't actually believe the stuff just wants to hear nice things about him so like i want klaus to tell me i'm the best podcaster ever and i'm really handsome and wonderful um but if i start actually believing all those things that i've gotten i've tricked klaus into saying that's where it moves into (laughs) pride when it becomes completely internalized and remember of course pride in several of the thinkers we've talked about in this podcast becomes the quintessential sin of Satan, the cause, especially in Lucifer models of Satan is the cause of Satan's fall, but in other models as well. Yeah. As I was reading about uh, when Evagrius is like discussing pride, especially pride, I really had a a total nerd attack and it reminded me of the psychology of Saruman Christopher Lee in the, you know, as I imagine him uh, in the Lord of the Ring movies, where you have this level of conceit that Evagrius associates with insanity, but also with like antisocial behavior where you can't even stand to be with your peers. It's impossible because of, of sheer disdain, but you're also losing at the same time, the ability to discern rational beings and you're confusing angels of demons. And for me, I'm like that, that reminds me of Saruman being like, yeah, this alliance with uh, a flaming lidless eye who is is burning atop of towers, like looking at everyone all the time. Like, this is a really great idea. I'm, this is going to turn out well for me at the end. For me, that was like totally Tolkien channeling some some Desert Daddy wisdom about the sin of pride. Hashtag Desert Daddies. Yeah, yeah. And that also gets into an interesting point about all this in that vainglory and pride for uh evagrius and uh maybe i don't know about cashin also but it's really linked to an advanced spiritual state like you're close to the point of breakthrough into being unswayed by the passions and getting deep gnostic knowledge of god when you're being afflicted by these demons and the other interesting thing that kind of makes this connection to the higher level of the spirituality is the fact that these demons are less about desire. They're not about the desire for money, you know, or even I guess with pride, the desire for others to give you this kind of recognition or for the desire for sex. It's about what, what, what Evagrius calls um, irascibility or excessive anger. It's about being, imp- not being spirited uh, to use the sort of old fashioned sense of that term, being a spirited, a spirited monk and just getting pissed off. Um, and that's what that's what it plays into it. I think it's also quite telling that pride is one of this, these kind of final demons that you face. That makes so much sense when we think again, moving to Lucifer and thinking about that as the quintessential fall there. Remember, this is like the captain of the angels, right? Uh, this is the highest figure. So when he's that close to divinity, pride is the thing that will tempt you in the end. So that seems quite consonant with that version of of the devil so these sinful thoughts divide the monk by distracting him and sometimes her from their task to achieve 
gnosis, remember knowledge, or reconciliation with God. It's all about that distraction, right? The demons also, these sinful thoughts, also break up communities as monks begin to criticize and scrutinize one another. So it's both micro and macro structural if you're thinking about the project of monasticism. It's interesting how even as the demons are located primarily in destructive thought patterns, building on this tradition that goes back to the Shepherd of Hermas and Origen, but also going back to what we've seen in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that has each person dealing with a personalized good and bad angel. Think cartoon, actually, one on each shoulder. Uh, monastic innovators like Antony in the letters write of the demons, and that is here demonic thoughts, right? The psychological kind of demons taking on bodies through human beings. We are their bodies. That's the idea here. It's a very striking formulation. It goes back to that point about how demons are a built-in feature to a disunified post-lapsarian world. When we succumb to impulses toward disunity, we literally incarnate the demonic. It is a kind of opposite answer, a, a perversion of being the body of Christ, this incarnation of the demonic through these evil thoughts and taking action, becoming the bodies of the monks. It's kind of disturbing. So Klaus, one important demon in monastic thought is this one that usually is left untranslated. It's called Acadia, right? Or it's transliterated as Acadia. So why don't you start us off here? Who or what is this demon and why is it so important? I'm going to just read a short passage from Bracky about Evagrius to sort of getting at what that's sort of the the phenomenal characteristics of this demon calling it the noonday demon which is a quote from uh, the 90th psalm Evagrius says that listlessness strikes the monk particularly between 10 a.m and 2 p.m when the sun is high in the sky and the day seems endless and i think probably everyone can relate to this feeling the there's a great sopranos episode where this happens where this guy's like trying to go the straight and narrow is working construction job is like just checking his watch care like constantly trying to get to his lunch break he's like oh it's got to be almost 11 it's got to be almost 11 and it looks at his watch it's like 9 30 and like he's at the point of suicide so yeah that's what we're talking about the monk waits desperately for something to interrupt what he experiences as monotony perhaps the time to eat which is at 3 p.m or the arrival of a visitor one catches a glimpse of Evagrius the scholar and calligrapher in this description of an attack of listlessness. While reading, the listless monk, quote, rubs his eyes and stretches his hands, and he takes his eyes off his book and stares at the wall. Then he returns to the book and reads a little. As he unfolds it, he becomes preoccupied with the condition of the texts. He counts the number of folios and calculates the quartiles. He criticizes the orthography and the decoration. Finally, he folds the book up and places it under his head and he falls into a light sleep. So yeah, Acadia is the word for that. That's, that's, sort of, that's sort of its hallmark appearance. And the best known sign is boredom. It's really this, this, this feeling that the day is totally endless. He, he writes, Acadia makes it appear that the sun moves slowly or not at all and the day seems to be 50 hours long. And that's from the Practicos. It presents in a wide variety of ways, though. It's not just that boredom. And, and part of the puzzle is how to account for this diversity in this phenomenon, in this demon. So there's, there's a general laziness, 
a lack of desire to read or pray, but there's also restlessness, a temptation to leave the cell. This restlessness links sometimes to a feeling of being cut off from God or just a feeling of despair, like what's the point? Why bother? And it, it's, it manifests in a number of other ways. What are some other ways in which this, this demon starts to take over Travis? Yeah, well, one of the ways that it sort of sneaks in and battles against these monks is through a sense of smugness and superiority over one's compatriots, even schismatic impulses, you know, striking off and starting up your own monastic community. This one's all wrong. They're doing everything wrong here. So you've got um, quite a different flavor to this particular variety of what's still called Acadia. And related to this sense of smugness and superiority, this pride, there's another way that it manifests, and I love this one, where you perform duties in the wrong measure or with the wrong motivation. And that could be anything from manual labor that monks were supposed to do to ascetic practices that they did, you know, to too great a degree or for the wrong reasons. It's an, and it's this inappropriate rationale for your actions or the inappropriate um, degree to which you perform them that is what's offensive about. And it looks, because it looks from the outside very much like, oh, this is a great monk. You know, he's doing everything right. Um, but for example, manual labor, the purpose of manual labor was actually a lot about focusing your mind and about doing that ceaseless prayer and enacting it through your body. So, for example, a monk would get in trouble if he would switch from task to task because that single-mindedness, um, that labor for God was made easier in this very subtle way. And so that's another way that this demon of Acadia would uh, manifest itself. So I've talked a little bit about the excessive feats of asceticism. This was often a temptation of early of monks early in their in their monastic career. You know, they show up at the monastery, they want to be the superstar monk and skip over all those levels that they're meant to go through of patiently spending their lives praying for years and years before they can advance to that level of uh, what we're calling what they called gnosis, right? Of knowledge of having you know. The, the practical experiential kind of knowledge of being a monk. They want to skip over that and say, well, maybe if I just stay up all night long and I pray all the time and I wear the hair shirt and I do all these things, I can skip to that being that, you know, super mystical, great, wise monk and I can get there faster in a kind of shortcut. But that's just, you know, if you don't recognize it, that is Acadia that is staring you down, tempting you to do that and make that kind of shortcut. Another example of this kind of excessive feats of asceticism would be when Acadia tempts a monk by suggesting that they fast for a really long time, longer than they're capable of doing. And what happens? The monk breaks down and in a moment of gluttony, you know, eats and then has been broken, right? But that's actually Acadia that's doing that temptation to something that's beyond the monk's capability. So... Um, another interesting sign of Acadia is related to that idea of an effort to be an excellent monk, right? Which seems like a good thing. Um, but these are liturgical innovations like 
glossolalia, which is where the speaking in tongues, um, or instead of reading, you chant again, which seems all this seems really good, right? Um, but it was characterized as immoderate. We might say that it's overenthusiasm, or Klaus might call it schwemerei, right? This idea of going going beyond and taking it a little too far. So the main danger in all of this is performing the monastic life for the wrong reasons or performing it in the wrong ways, which divorce you from the point of these practices, the point of this way of life. That is what Acadia tempts you to do. So all this sounds like quite a predicament, uh, Travis. What are some of the first steps to responding to this demon of Acadia? Can you tell us a little bit about what that process is like or what kind of knowledge is needed for responding to Acadia? Yeah, well, first, because it's so chameleon-like, it has all these different forms, Klaus, that the first thing you need to do is recognize what demon it is that you're dealing with. And we've mentioned that a little bit before. Um, You need a kind of spiritual doctor and an abbot or an elder to help you identify what exactly what exactly this sin is that is tempting you, that it is Acadia, um, to help heal you. For Pacomius, who is the uh, quote-unquote father of Cenobitic monasticism, that is the monasticism of communities, right, who live together and pray together under a rule and whose characteristic virtue is obedience. For Pacomius, this becomes the discernment of spirits. That's the kind of wisdom you need to... Uh, test and distinguish between these various spirits which ones are is good which one is evil and among the evil ones which one is acadia which one is sloth which one is um anger etc which one is greed um and also to distinguish there's so much work to be done here right in this diagnosis phase between natural sort of problems those that arise or illnesses that arise for example out of an imbalance of the humors or versus unnatural um, ailments that are caused by demons. When it comes to Acadia specifically, diagnosis must have been something of a puzzle since you've got this broad range of symptoms. So Klaus, tell us a little bit about some of the strategies for treatment. How did monks try and deal with Acadia, this many-headed serpent, this kind of hydra of demonic thoughts? Right, yeah. And before I do, I just wanted to like read I can find the thing really fast from the practicos. No other demon follows on immediately after this one, but after its struggles, the soul is taken over by a peaceful condition and by unspeakable joy. And that kind of gets at something I want to talk about a little bit because uh, you and just asked me to think about the treatment. And a question I have that we can sort of ponder here is when thinking about treatment, how to evaluate the experience of falling for these demons, of falling into sin? Like, is this the end of the world? Like, is this something that everyone goes through? Is that what everyone's saying in those late night conferences with Evagrius and John Cashin that like, oh man, we've all fallen for all of these. Like, like, so how to think about fallibility and fragility is something that I think is really interesting. And the relationship between that and this world that's just infested with demons. But yeah, some basic practical treatment from Evagrius. Uh, think about the goals of monasticism. Um, think about the big picture of knowledge and being freed from the passions versus the, the minutia of any particular duty. Also, just 
trying to force yourself to stick with it is important for a vagrius, but also like in, in that sticking with it, I think the, the, the frustration that brings tears or, and tears of repentance are also an important way of trying to clear this demon out. Um, he says it almost brings a kind of peace or joy once you sort of have gone through it in, in the practicos. Maybe not a surprise here, another common remedy, redoubling one's efforts at prayer. Just keep doing it harder. I want to say fake it till you make it, but I'm probably that's probably not what he would say. Again, this is something that, that Travis pointed to. You have to realize that all of this isn't natural, that this isn't, and it's complicated because Evagrius does think some passions of the soul are natural, but the whole status of being a human being fallen away from the oneness of God is, you know, the bigger, the bigger category is unnatural. There's things that are sort of microclimates of, of naturalness in that unnatural state. So it gets confusing, right? Sometimes really going into physical labor is good for dealing with this demon. Sometimes it's not. Again, protean chameleon qualities. Simplifying the routine with worship or with your prayer. Make it easier. These are things that, you know, there's a kind of idea of having freedom as as a Christian to make these things work for you in your spiritual life rather than being strictly bound to them even though obedience is important uh for other for other monastic communities uh there has to be some flexibility right you know finally uh in the passage i was reading the cell staying in the cell is so important for a vagrius sometimes you just have to stick it out and stay in the damn cell sometimes you need to take a break and leave you know it's it's, it's sort of enraging in terms of uh, the contradictoriness of the of the advice but it gets into what you were saying about how um how protean and chameleon-like this demon is. But there's another scholar, maybe I'll, uh, you know, I'll ask you to sort of help us understand uh, this work by Andrew uh, Crisplin that tries to like look at these contradictory phenomena and explain how, what's going on here from a more sort of modern sociological point of view, Travis. So you help us sort of like dig into that a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. So Crisplin talks about this sociological category called anomie. What is anomie? Anomie describes the condition of weariness at the disjuncture between expectations of societies, right? We all know what those are like, and an individual's ability to actually achieve those goals. And it occurs, I would say, also at a cultural level, right? The society's expectations, these are big, uh, generally understood expectations. That's the model of anomie anyway. We're going to talk about how it's being applied here a bit later. Anomie occurs either through distancing from the goals to achieve the goals understood to be the best or alienation from the prescribed means for achieving the goals. So you're you're rejecting either the society's dictated goals or society's means for achieving those goals. You're you're um, having a reaction against you're rebelling or abandoning um, either the goals or the means. Crisplin argues that Acadia is most prevalent among monks who are not attached to the formal structure of a community, either because they're hermits or of some, or because of some special situation like illness, which kind of takes you out of the normal routines of the community. Um, you, for example, uh, get to eat whatever you want when you're sick in these communities, very different from the highly regulated diet that you normally have. And anomie is most prevalent in places that, quote, prioritize individual achievement without a strict set of behavioral expectations. 
And that's very different from the Chenobia, that is the uh, communal monastic settings where people are living in community under a rule of life, where you have much more of an agreement and focus on shared goals and norms. And that's both at the level of, of the goals and norms and also at how to achieve them. There's just a lot more structure supporting those folks. And Anomia sort of um, describes a situation where you're distanced from uh, the goals or the means. And that's, you can imagine, easier to do when there's less uh, social structure to support you in this incredibly difficult work. So that's um, sort of a nutshell of Crisplin's argument. Beyond that, the goals between members of a Cenobitic community and a hermit differ. For hermits, apatheia or gnosis, um, and for those who are living in community, you've got obedience. And we've touched on that a little bit before. Now, I want to be clear that Crisplin does not equate Acadia with Anomi, which is, of course, a modern, much later sociological category. At the same time, however, he argues that the range of behaviors associated with it, which are so, you know, wildly divergent, um, it makes sense within this theory of Anomi as a, um, a wide set of divergent reactions when people are faced with goals and the means to achieve goals that are unrealistic within their culture. So think, for example, of an economic depression where achieving a certain um, socioeconomic level that your parents did is no longer possible for you. And so what do you do? You're like, well, being middle class sucks. I'm not going to aim for that anyway. Or getting or, or doing the thing, going to college, getting the degree to get the job to achieve that status, you reject that, you know. And what and I think just to add to that, um, what's interesting, too, is that like for one of the early people working with this category, it's like enemy isn't just that sense of, oh, like there's an economic depression. So you might as well not strive. It's also something that Durkheim saw. This is Emil Durkheim who I'm talking about, saw in boom times where mm -hmm. when basically, when, and this is sort of the conservative like thread running through Durkheim's ideas. But like when you see massive changes in societies or in cultures, as you're saying, um, it becomes disorienting and people get cut off from their goals and the ways of achieving them. So for Durkheim and this sort of like, also like a kind of anti-materialism to see like, oh, even the rich people are really depressed and alienated and near suicide during these times of, of either uh, economic depression or boom, because it's, it sort of just throws the norms out of whack. Um, so yeah, just to sort of tie that, that back together to the sociological. That's great. Um, now, Klaus, I'm really curious about what you made of this theory. I thought in many ways, the kind of reactions and the different categories of reactions, whether it be rebellion um, or kind of abandonment of the goals, those tracked pretty well with Acadia. And I like how it provided a sort of neat container for us to think about um, something that is so uh, multifaceted and it provides a kind of explanatory model. But I'm not sure we need to get as specific as Anomi tends to be. And what do I mean by that? In particular, Anomi feels cultural, feels like it's at a, a kind of macro level. It feels like the norms and the means that are addressed in most examples of Anomi are primarily unwritten. They're culturally and socially understood, but they're not literal rules in a book. And when you go to a monastery, you're talking about, certainly you could, you could talk about it as a subculture at this point, but 
the kind of rebellion that you're talking about is literally about a, a rule book, a set of very well understood norms. And so the kind of rebellion you're talking about, I would say, is a, is is different. And I don't think Chris Blinn quite acknowledges that this is a kind of um, application, really, of something that's meant to deal with culture and society on a on a larger scope um, that's being applied to this more specific situation and, and how that might affect a, um, the the analysis. However, Acadia as ultimately a kind of conglomerate set of sins, you know, you might think about it that way, um, that all try and get the monk to abandon the goal of monasticism. Well, I think that's right. I think that's spot on. Mm -hmm. What do you make of it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought I really appreciated a theoretical uh, effort to tie together the great diversity of vices that seem to be housed under this uh, chameleon demon Acadia. And I thought that trying, and I thought the, the, that question led Crisplin to a, a good method to see, well, who is most impacted by this? Um, and I think, uh, as you were saying, like it, at, in these, at these macro level, social, structural, or cultural, those things may not be totally explicit, whereas you're saying in a, in a monastic community, it, it is explicit. And I thought that was part of the point, though, where actually the goals were for the hermits. It's like there's like it's it's less a contract you signed on the dotted line for, like with the Cenobia, and more like okay, you have like these principles, but like you know, it's not very concrete. You got to figure it out for yourself. And I think that's where that's why it's it's helpful because. I think you're right to draw the distinction between explicit norms and goals versus implicit. And I think what you get with the hermits and the semi-aromedical people is like a kind of, there is some slippage into vagueness there possible. Yeah. So Klaus, would you say that there's a discernible difference between your kind of everyday demons that we hear about in Antony and others and the figure of the devil in any of this literature? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's it gets very complicated. And a way to sort of get into it and try to parse it a bit is to work with this 5th century Coptic monastic leader and prophet named Chanute. And he was the leader of the White Monastery. And again, we need way more color symbolism in all of our work. So we welcome the White yes, Monastery yes. with open arms. Um, but yeah, Chanute's like less interested in general in diagnosing particular demons like Evagrius and Cassian, and way more interested in the monk's struggles with the Prince of Darkness himself. And this is clear from the title of bangers like the discourse, because of you too, O Prince of Evil. It's like, it's, it's like emo black metal, um, which I'm totally into. So idea. I'm wondering, Klaus, if our next project should be actually recording that album. Um, so stay tuned, everyone, for and you know if you have any uh, offers for collaboration, you know just tweet us. So, uh, but all, all, all of our song be... lyrics, all of our song lyrics will be theology and and things we've read. We'll oh, all be yeah. taken straight from that. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, there's gonna be a lot of like uh, Greek and like uh, Coptic in the songs, obviously. So mm -hmm. Latin is definitely gonna make an appearance. So this focus on the devil rather than on the whole host of demons that we've been talking about for most of this episode makes Chanute reminiscent of the diabology that we see and we've talked about in the Gospel of John when Jesus calls his Judean critics the children of Satan. So the devil has a kind of incarnational theology. So to quote Bracca, the scholar we've been talking about so much this episode, quote, the dismembered and corpse-like Satan embodies himself in multiple sinful people and gains a physical presence in the world through them. Again, this idea of a kind of incarnate devil, right? That through succumbing and assenting to sins, we embody the devil himself. While Evagrius wants to identify the subtle powers and identities of these multiple demons, Chanute has little patience for this discernment science, and instead asserts that the monk must simply fight off the pestilent thoughts and unnatural passions that ultimately come from the devil himself. Even a small child, according to Chanute, can recognize their origin. The heart that resists these thoughts is like a stone over which a snake has slithered. You're not going to learn anything about the snake from looking at that stone. And similarly, there's nothing to be learned from the devil uh, from this intense self-scrutiny and psychologization. This sort of demonology or diabology functions to take morally ambiguous situations and makes them black and white, a dualistic struggle between Christ and Satan. Most of the time, Chanute speaks of the devil's work in terms that are by now familiar, distracting thoughts, sinful passions, bodily trials, physical suffering, and illusions that strike especially in dreams. The combat with the devil is psychological, except when it's not. There's a great story that illustrates this, once Chanute was conflicted about whether to expel some monks of high social standing who had participated in some unnamed sin from the white monastery. He was hesitant to do it precisely because of their stature and because they had shared the same table. They were part of the same community. They felt something, a human passion, right? A human feeling for loyalty. Uh, one night he's, he's struggling with this decision. He's pacing what he calls the streets of the monastery, those mean streets. Uh, and out of nowhere, some local bureaucrat or official appears with an assistant and just like bursts into the monastery. And Chanute's like, WTF. And he reports that it was as if he were someone concerned about those sinful monks. Well, man, that's leaping to some conclusions, right? But anyway, uh, he could be forgiven for uh, making this judgment because this official just starts jacking him up, just like the streets of the monastery become the streets of rage, like a video game for God's sakes. Uh, but in case it's not apparent by now, Chanute is no wilting daisy. He may not know karate, but he knows crazy to quote James Brown. And he throws <laughs> this official to the ground, demanding to know whether he's an angel, a demon or whatever, you know, or just a dude, right? Um, <laughs> maybe Chanute, maybe pay your taxes next time, man. You know, like, come on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> By the time he has this pompous fool in a scissor hold, damn, it's clear that this guy must be a demon. Otherwise, this ass whooping would never have commenced in the first place. Thank you for that 
colorful portrayal of what was not as exciting in the original. I can definitely tell, I can definitely attest to that. Well done, Klaus. Uh, Chanute recounts all this as a way of affirming his authority to expel the sinful from the midst of the community. You're out. Like, that's it. I'm cutting you out. Um, so what seemed like a complicated situation was really just a fist fight between good and evil. If this demonic government man can get body slammed out of the monastery, then why not these preppy wannabe monks? They must be cut off from the body as members that have become rotten. He's just going to cut them out of his life with the scissors in his hand. Snip, snip, snip. Canceled. Yeah. Um, Canceled. So we see this wide range of uses here in the practical context of governing a monastery and, and basic monastic life, ranging from these really subtle internal diagnoses of demonic thoughts down to separating the sheep from the goats. So it's like this, it, you go from scrutinizing yourself to making these political decisions. So demonology and diabology in this, these monastic writings, they're like a Swiss army knife that packages everything from a surgeon's scalpel to the chainsaw from evil dead. Well, Klaus, at this point, just like St. Anthony, I'm being attacked by an animal. And in this case, it's my possessed dog who maybe himself suffers from the demon of gluttony. In other words, I should really feed him dinner at some point. So with that... Thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. Thank you.